Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Folks, this is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Gamers with Glasses is your gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games. Today, I am joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. Nate Schmidt. Hello, hello. And Anastasia Salter. Hello. And this is going to be a great episode because we're going to be doing games of the year, but I wanted to first introduce our special guest, Anastasia. Anastasia is a professor at University of Central Florida and the author of a number of books on fandom, adventure games, and electronic literature. And, you know, like I said, we're going to be doing games of the year uh, for this episode, but we're going to do things a little bit different than is often done at other websites or other podcasts, which is that we're going to be doing games that we played during this year that may or may not have been 2020 releases. I know each of us has probably some games that have come before that, but they were games that we played this year and that have defined our experience in 2020. And, you know, I also just want us to acknowledge that 2020 has been a year, maybe 10 years smashed into one. Um, and so gaming has been a mechanism for coping, for getting some relief, for thinking about things and going places we might not be able to go otherwise for that matter. Um, and I also just wanted to say that this is, you know, this is Gamers with Glasses first year. It's been our first several months. We started back in August um, and we have managed to you know, put up, I think, around 100 articles in that relatively short span of time. We've done a number of podcasts. We've done some great series. We did and are still doing a series on the pandemic and just gaming during the pandemic, which I know, Anastasia, you contributed a great piece on Jackbox for that. I uh, love that piece. Uh, we've done... Uh, series, our creature feature in October, a series on monsters and abject creatures of all kinds. We are wrapping up our series of articles on everything punk, which is mostly meant steampunk and cyberpunk. But basically, we have managed to talk about everything punk, cyberpunk, and steampunk without talking about the gigantic uh, virtual reality elephant in the room that is Cyberpunk 2077, though I think Roger is going to break that streak maybe today. Uh, and 
you know, we've just had a ton of articles on all kinds of different things, uh, big and small, from crunch in the video game development industry to uh, board games to what it's like to run LARPs and try to reestablish game nights during the pandemic. And it's just been a real blast. And we're really looking forward to bringing you a lot more interesting, complex, uh, fun and intellectual content in 2021. So without further ado, why don't we get into our games of the year and let's see, I think we're going to start with Roger. So Roger, what is your first game of the year? Yeah, well, like you pointed out, Christian, it's been a crazy, crazy year. And I have to say, I really struggled with my game of the year list. I usually don't, um, just in terms of, you know, my own favorite games. Um, But this year... I went through a number of months just not being able to play games at all. Um, That was one thing that I I wrote about. My first article was actually talking about how for months I could only play Slay the Spire. Like that was it. I could not do any kind of immersive kind of gaming environment because um, I was too wrapped up in everything else. And so um, it it was interesting to kind of reflect on that at the end uh, of the year and to try to come up with games that really impacted me. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit that they're not the games that I... It's interesting because like um, I feel like the games that I picked were games that sort of mark different moments of this year for me more than like these are the best sort of games per se. And so, um, yeah, so my first one is actually Wasteland 3. <clears throat> I had never played a Wasteland... This is my first Wasteland game. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm usually not actually into with the, with the exception of last of us, which by the way, I haven't played. So I have a bit of game FOMO there. Um, uh, I, I don't usually play post-apocalyptic games. Um, and so I haven't played any of the fallout games. I haven't played any of the wasteland games. I decided to try out wasteland three just because of what people were saying about it. Um, and I, I particularly loved, I just was so blown away by the whole sequence. There's a whole sequence in Wasteland 3 where you have to fight this. Um, you either join or fight this um, this tribe. They call themselves the Gippers, and they're based upon Ronald Reagan. <laughs> There's a giant <laughs> artificial intelligence, Ronald Reagan, that, that rules them. Um, and, uh, there are a whole bunch of these like special warrior women called Nancy's after Nancy Reagan. Um, and it was just probably one of the most fun, interesting, fascinating, particularly for this political moment in our lives to see this kind of thing become a kind of crazy, right? Post-apocalyptic gang (laughs) of raging conservatives was, was pretty, was pretty fascinating. The second thing, the second game I, oh, are we, yeah. We were going to yeah. go round Robin, but it, yeah, if go you want to jump. Go ahead, No. All oh, right. We've already, already decided that the podcast is going to be titled Post-Apocalyptic Gang of Raging Conservatives. So <laughs> There we go. <laughs> yes, I think we've got a table, title. Roger, you can do whatever you want. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Is that a podcast episode title or is that actually just so. a description <laughs> of 2020? Um, uh, so I think next up on the docket uh, is Anastasia. Like Roger, I really struggled with gaming this year. And I mean, I have 
become in many ways less and less of a gamer every year in the traditional sense. I play fewer and fewer AAA titles and many more just odd narrative games. And uh, that's been amplified, I think, <laughs> by this, this uh, current moment uh, where a lot of games can't really hold my attention for very long. So it's, uh, of course, my, my top pick, uh, Kentucky Route Zero, is of course a game that has been in the making for, for far longer than 2020 and that I've been invested in since kind of before this particularly difficult uh, time for game playing. So I'm sure that helped uh, kind of with my investment in it. But it's also, a, I think, kind of the perfect example of the type of game uh, I, I wish we had more of, <laughs> and that to me represents uh, the type of thoughtful, literary, uh, not exactly interactive even, but kind of meaningfully engaging uh, narrative experience that doesn't really invite us to control it. Uh, and in which we are uh, in many ways kind of brought along in the experience of something that is Joycean and surreal and beautiful uh, in a way that very few games are to me right now. Uh, so that game, when I think about kind of games that will transcend this year for me and games I can go back to, it's the one that stands out as this is a game I will be teaching for ever. <laughs> this is a game that we will, we will go back to when we think about what does it mean to bring together all of the aesthetic uh, elements available to us in game design uh, to craft something that is that is powerful and bring it to an ending that is perhaps uh, not perfectly satisfying, right? That, mm -hmm. that leaves us uh, kind of with the you know, emotionally unresolved sense that we don't always get from games. Uh, and so I find it unsettling and replayable in that sense. Uh, and very few games uh, reach that for me this year of all years when when perhaps the emotionally unsettling is not necessarily something I'm even seeking from games. Mm. So graphically, uh, musically, uh, and characters and dialogue, and in this this move from the solitude to the, the chorus, kind of Kentucky Route Zero takes you on this journey of what the an adventure type game can mean. So it's one I uh, truly, for anyone who hasn't picked it up yet, uh, it has to be experienced. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of my games of the year as well. And uh, I think it's in part was shaped by having the fortune of interviewing Jake Elliott, you know, one of the two people uh, that composed Cardboard Computer, the developers that made the game, and uh, getting to hear a little bit about his story behind it. But also just, I mean, as a whole, I thought Act 5, which released, I want to say in January of this year or February, um, you know, and they started really working on it in 2012, uh, 2011. Uh, but a kind of post-financial crisis moment in trying to reckon with what it means to live in hard times. And, and in a way, this ended up being the perfect year for this game to come out or the worst year, depending on your point of view. Uh, but it was also a game that each episode, you know, each act, and they released them episodically, often several years apart, felt like it was thought through on its own terms, um, so that each one was doing its own thing, and there were characters that held over. But, you know, without giving too much away, you don't even follow the what you thought was the protagonist to the very end of Act 5. It takes a step back uh, and puts you in this 
town that has been ruined by a power company that's been ruined by debt and that is in well you know that's a wasteland in a way but it's not it doesn't give you this kind of like Hobbesian war of all against all it doesn't show you people at you know one another's throats instead it shows you them very slowly starting to rebuild and thinking about rebuilding and playing music and you follow a cat around at one point you are a cat uh and the tone that it leaves you with is very cautiously hopeful. And I think that's, when I talked to Jake, that's what we talked a lot about was what does it mean to be cautiously optimistic, cautiously hopeful, which I think is the tone I'm trying to set for myself as I go into the new year with a vaccine on the horizon that some of us will hopefully get to take sooner rather than later. It's just cautious hope, not even optimism. I don't think I can get to cautious optimism, but cautious hope. Uh, in Kentucky Route Zero, I think, is a game that is willing to look at things like debt, uh, sickness, addiction, alcoholism. Uh, it's willing to experiment with what games can do. There are segments that are like watching a television show or having a phone call. There are segments that are like a classical adventure game and, in fact, are riffing on you know, classical adventure games like Adventure. Uh, but it's doing its own thing. It's doing its own thing with a kind of folksy vibe that to me at least never came off as cloying or overly sweet or saccharine or sentimental, at least not in the worst way. It's just the right kind of sentimental, I guess is what I would say. So yeah, so Kentucky Route Zero, uh, another big vote of confidence for me. Um, and I'm really happy to hear that it was a meaningful experience to you, Anastasia. I think you're, you're capturing something that was so important to me about this game. It's in the shadow of the American dream. And everyone you meet is struggling with the, the complete failure of American society. <laughs> so in that sense, uh, it certainly resonates right now as we, we experience <laughs> the same type of breakdown, but also watch those efforts at community response uh, and some of the, the coming together. That's, uh, as you say, the right type of sentimental that we get out of the, that ending uh, and the sense of a, a town that is not entirely defeated. Yeah. I there's, a, there's like a through line there between Roger's discussion there and ours too, because a lot of it, I mean, Reagan being the president that came up with the slogan, let's make America great again, you know, uh, that then Trump picked up. So there's something about living in the ruins of these white male presidential figures that decided that America needed some kind of renewal and just left us with wastelands to live in. I had a really brief question about Kentucky Route Zero um, because... I actually want to go back um, and, and you know, re-examine. I hadn't played it since, I think I played the second act. I think I played through the second act. Uh, I noticed on my on my Steam computer that I hadn't downloaded it since 2014. <laughs> so, so that um, would have been act two, yeah. Yeah, so like how did the serialized nature of the game uh, impact your, your gaming of it? Did you Did you decide to like, replay the whole game or did you play it as it as it came out and like what what did that do to your experience Anastasia I'll let you go for that sure uh so I I replayed the whole thing when act five 
came out. I wanted to experience it as a, as a complete piece. And I played episodically as it was released as well. Uh, but I felt like, especially with the time that had passed, I wanted that uh, refresher. And I admit part of that was because I assumed things about how Act Five's narrative would rely upon elements that weren't always the case. So it was interesting to me that I don't think I needed to do that <laughs> to, to get the, the value from Act Five. And in that sense, it's really well designed as an episodic narrative where uh, each act does have a a sense of completion of a kind of a compelling uh, internal structure, uh, as well as, as all serial narratives must, some sense of, of things to come, things that you, you want to see uh, follow forward, which created, of course, the great sense of anticipation uh, that accompanied each release. I, I mean, I would pretty much say the same thing as Anastasia, which is I played it from beginning to end. I had played a couple of the episodes. I had actually read more about it than played it uh, before playing Act 1 through Act 5. I'd read a couple, I, I'd played a couple episodes, but I hadn't really, I don't think I had kept up. Um, but I had kept up with their production of it because that was interesting to me. Um, and when I was talking to Jake, just hearing about like the situation for each act that they were producing and was very different, especially after act one and two, because they went from thinking that they were going to finish the game in three years to finishing it in about 11 or 12. And they, you know, the first few acts, they were working jobs that, you know, were supporting them to keep doing this, even as they were running Kickstarters and stuff, it wasn't enough, you know, so... Nate, what have you got on the docket? What do I have on the docket? <clears throat> I have been, um, I mean, I just, I didn't want to do the answer that anyone who's ever listened to any of the other episodes would already know, which is that I just play Skyrim all the time. Like, that's really <laughs> what I do. And I even, I have a, I have a, a piece that I was working on with uh, Toph and Edmund about um, just what a miserable replacement Skyrim was for my regular RPG uh, group, my tabletop group, because it took us a really long time to transition to Roll20. Um, and so kind of in the interim was when I started to get into, you know, into, into fantasy RPGs and just how bad it sucked to be like wandering around, being the only living being in this... <laughs> artificial intelligence wasteland where people refer to you in the second person and call you traveler all the time. Like it's just, <laughs> it's terrible. It absolutely consolidated my, my, my pandemic isolation. And I kept playing it anyway. Um, but I think in general, that's kind of my sort of what, what my year end list has been and kind of what my year has been too is, you know, I'm a big, like, kind of kind of a kind of a kind of a metalhead and kind of just like a, I, I like to lean into ugly and negative feelings i find that the best way to get to get into them is to go through them you know especially since i i seem to have a inability to go over them anyway <laughs> so like why not go through them you know um and so a lot of the games that i really enjoyed this year were games that didn't necessarily weren't out to make you feel better weren't out to help you escape um in in any particular way because i i don't know i i find some comfort in that some weird sort of backwards comfort so anyway um i played most recently i've played uh inmost by um hidden layer games 
which came out this year. And um, it's just, has, have, have any of the rest of you played it or heard about it or, or done anything with it? Heard about it. For some reason, I in my brain, I have like uh, inside or, uh, you know, limbo style kind of sideways platformer yeah yeah so okay good so so that gives me a baseline of how much to kind of explain that so it's uh it's the thing that drew me in is that it's this relentlessly melancholic um pixel art game it's it's clearly i really love the graphics they're clearly rendered by a a powerful modern engine um, there's a lot of shading and light and, um, you don't have a health meter, the screen, the tone and saturation of the screen just change in relationship to how hurt your character is. Um, and, and the lighting shifts. And so there are all these cool ways that it sort of plays with, with, um, pixel art as a medium. Um, And I just, I was kind of drawn to it because it looked like, you know, a bunch of people being absolutely miserable, but in the world of, of Pokemon, um, and and I sort of, and, and, and so the thing to kind of distill what I found most interesting about it. So you play as one of usually there's a couple little exceptions, but you trade off between three different characters. Um, who are all sort of wandering through this world. The controls are very simple. There's like a walk and an interact. Um, And you find different little items that just, but you can't pick which ones you're using. They just by default sort of, there's a little thing that'll come across at the top of the screen. So like you could use the pickaxe on this if you really wanted to. It doesn't say it in so many words, but you know what I mean. Um, And so you play as either a little girl in a haunted house um, who can sort of move furniture around a little bit if it's light to use to climb on, but that's about all she has. She has a rabbit who talks to her. Um, you can play as a grown man who can sort of jump and climb and, and meander. I don't know what his name is. I call him the puzzle guy because his parts are the parts that have the most like fiendish puzzles um, that you have to kind of figure out. Um, and then every once in a while you play as this knight with a grappling hook, who's the only character that has a weapon. Um, but all three of them live in this world where there are these sort of real creepy for pixel for, for, for the way the art was rendered. I was amazed how creepy it was. These real creepy sort of shadow monsters. And what's really fun about playing as puzzle guy. And what was really interesting to me about the game was that he's totally defenseless against these things. And so you're wandering this this world that's kind of mostly this sort of real gothic, decrepit castle kind of vibe. Uh, and it's raining and there's sad music and stuff. Uh, uh, and, and, and you're totally at the mercy of these creatures that may or may not attack you at random. Um, and it's not it's not like Dark Souls. You don't the, when you die, it doesn't set you back very far. Um, you, there the times when I got frustrated was because I was not smart enough to figure out a puzzle. I didn't like die perpetually, but it's just, it's really interesting having to navigate this world where you are at the mercy, completely at the mercy of, uh, of aleatory, 
uh, beings that that are antagonistic towards you. That was really nice because that that jived with a lot of my feeling of um, living through this everything else this year was and also dealing with uniquely crippling debt uh, this year uh, myself was just really um, a nice feeling to lean into. And, um, and then as the character that can actually fight things, he's, uh, he's evil. He, he's the only like uniquely, notably, identifiably evil character in the game. And so as you're sort of going through and sort of stomping on these monsters, right when you're starting to feel satisfied about the fact that you couldn't do this five minutes ago when you were puzzle guy, you're reminded of the violence sort of of the actions that you're that you're taking in these sort of gripping ways. So it's cool. I really liked it. I if I had to critique it, I would say that um it chooses to wrap up the storylines with a cutscene, a really long cutscene, which is not my favorite mechanic. I prefer for games to sort of resolve in game. Um, but that's really my only complaint. It was a good game for for feeling really bad. It's a really devastatingly sad story too. The whole thing is just sad. Um, but uh, but sometimes that's what you need, you know. And for me this year, that's kind of what I needed. I feel I feel like it's really fascinating, Nate. That um, and it made me think while while you were um, talking about your game um, about what it is we're looking for in games, right? Like, are we looking for escapism? Are we looking for um, in some artistic way engaging with the difficulties that we're experiencing in this moment in time and um i've kind of done both in weird ways like i some sometimes i i can i can i can get the courage i can build up the courage to like uh read the read the kim stanley robinson novel or play the post-apocalyptic video game um and then other times i'm like i just can't i can't do it right now but i know that if i can do it if i can do it if i can get to that space where like I can play the difficult game, the game that's emotionally difficult. It's actually much more satisfying for me um, uh, in terms of like living through this moment. So. Yeah, it's almost like a kind of. um, Like a kind of really, really safe exposure therapy. Like (laughs) you can where, where you have this place where sort of. Um, the only consequences of, of the bad things that happen are going to be virtual and mostly imaginary. I don't know. I just, I found it. I, yeah, I agree. I find it really satisfying to be able to, um, take a break from how crushing sort of the real world experience has been by experiencing a crushing virtual world instead. I actually think that's a really good sort of contrast in, in a lot of ways. It's, it's at least been helpful for me. Roger, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, some of your pandemic games that you've got down here. Yeah, totally. And this is actually, uh, this was actually inspired partly by Anastasia Salter's great piece that we published a while ago when she talked about Jackbox games. And I had, um, so... So it's interesting. I had played when I was in college. I had played You Don't Know Jack, like a lot. Um, and that's when they were sold in those, you know, the, the CD-ROM uh, bits. And they would come out every other year or something like that. And my friends loved it. And uh, I had just not gotten into it. I mean, since then, like I kind of fell off of it. And um, 
and once the pandemic started, I was actually looking for things that could uh, replace game night because I really do miss that kind of getting together with friends and um, sharing an experience together, right? Like I really miss that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I've played, uh, I've played Jackbox games a, a few times, almost to the point where I'm kind of sick of it. I'm kind of tired. Like they're like, let's do Jackbox. I'm like, okay, we'll do that. You know, but the one that I love, and I don't remember which, which volume it's on, but the one that I remember just absolutely loving is Bomb Corps. Um, and it's this really amazing, um, you're a part of this. It's, it has this really funny, uh, kind of corporate, uh, jokey atmosphere to it. And you're diffusing bombs, um, except different players get different information. Right. And so like, you know, you know that you can, you, you can't cut, you know, the red wire, but, um, your friend doesn't know it. And your friend might know that you can actually cut the red wire next to the blue wire. Like, and so you actually have to talk to one another. It's this really fascinating way in which it creates a kind of collaborative environment in a zoom space that I thought was just really, really interesting. Um, and, um, very frustrating and kind of in a fun way. Um, the other thing that happened during the pandemic is I started really playing a lot of No Man's Sky multiplayer with, um, with Jason Michael, who writes for the site. And I've just been enjoying it. I, this is the first time I've actually ever played No Man's Sky. I'd never really bought it. Like when it first came out, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. Right. And, um, I, I, it, it does have this kind of Stardew Valley kind of Zen-like, kind of experience where you're just sort of gathering materials and building stuff and you're doing it with a friend. So there's that kind of added experience to it. Um, yeah. And so like just trying to find different ways of, and trying to, I think multiplayer has been an interesting kind of way that different games have tried to, um, create a sense of togetherness, even though it's not the same. So. Yeah, that's great. So when you're playing, uh, no man's sky multiplayer uh with jason so what are you guys doing are you just kind of hopping from planet to planet are you base building together yeah we're building bases and like i went to some space station and i had to learn a language i guess i don't think i know the language still and um yeah it's 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 you know the other side of this is like this is like just a sort of and maybe i'm just not maybe i haven't gotten to the point where i really get the real significance of this game but a lot of this game it seems to me that like when they were developing no man's sky they were really focused on oh we're going to procedurally generate like billions and billions of worlds and you can never get to all of them and then they kind of forgot to put a game in there somewhere um and so they were they kind of just threw a sort of like a kind of survival crafting game on top of they're like we're well, here, here's a game right and <laughs> and so the game is not like I don't know, from my point of view, it, it's not that sophisticated, but it's still fun. And it's it's something that I can do with Jason. And um, so that's been that's been kind of a good experience. Wouldn't it be a great alternative to Duolingo if just there was a big triple A game where there was a part where you could not progress until you learned Italian? 
(laughs) 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 You can't, you're not going to get to the end of this Metal Gear Solid game until you can have a solid conversation in Italian with this NPC. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Just when you said learning a language, that was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, it's a ridiculous, it's also a ridiculous gamification of language learning to be sure. Like it's, you're you're they will give you a word and then suddenly you know it and then you can kind of practice with them and sometimes you get it wrong which is kind of fun a little bit but um there's no stakes attached to it so it's kind of whatever yeah for for me this year has been it's been a strange year you know with lockdown like it has been for everybody it's been a year where our infant became a toddler and so i'm spending a lot of time just running around after a child in the most literal sense and discovering what new things she can reach which has definitely affected how i play games when i can play games it's been a lot of like short stints at games and ways that uh sometimes work and sometimes don't i found myself playing a ton of early access games this year which i'm not going to really talk about uh because i in most cases i just don't know where they're going to end up uh though maybe to just kind of shout out a couple that eventually i'll write about uh one is cloud gardens uh which is a kind of game in which you're using plants to clean up and clean up's not even quite the right word green to re-green uh these kinds of urban spaces uh and uh you know i just been sort of dabbling in a lot of ways and jumping and bouncing from things to things. But one of the games that I actually managed to finish uh, because it's short uh, and sweet, uh, even as it's, I would also say, quite dramatic, is a little game called Welcome to Elk. And it was made by a Danish studio uh, called Triple Topping. And... There's a lot of things about this game that I could say, but I'll say that it's, you know, the first thing I'll say is it's kind of like a two-dimensional walking simulator in the style, in the, like, art style of, like, a Bob's Burgers. Um, So a cartoony art style that's a little bit off-kilter. And most of what you're doing is just walking from one character to the next, hearing stories from their lives. And usually they're stories of loss or of hardship, of losing a partner, or of having some aspect of their life just turn out to be very disappointing, or of dealing with assault in some way. Uh, It's not, like it's odd because it never feels like it's laying it on thick. It always feels like you're just hearing somebody tell you a story because that's what it is, right? And it's not trying to produce this kind of grand sense like you're saving the world it's not even trying to produce this sense that you're hearing something over dramatic and i think the thing for me that it really conveyed was a sense of the ordinariness of loss or the ordinariness of death um and just as somebody who's like i've watched maybe close to a dozen family members die in different conditions um been in hospice with a lot of them most recently my mother and so seeing something actually grasp that death often isn't dramatic, that it sometimes it's just this ordinary thing, uh, that you can still respect it for how significant it is without expanding it into some kind of like epic thing. 
uh, was really helpful. There's also just mini-games that you only see one time each for the most part. Uh, so there's a card game that I think they're turning into a real card game right now, uh, as in a paper card game that you can buy online. Uh, there's a game where you're just pouring beer from a tap and you try to get the right ratio of like liquid to head. Um, we've played that game a few times this year. (laughs) Yeah, right, (laughs) right, exactly. And so there's just like, you know, and at first I was kind of like, why am I playing these mini games? You know, why is it, why are they taking this time out? But it sort of felt right by the end. It kind of felt like, okay, like there's a way in which this is capturing the rhythm of grappling with your own loss or somebody else's loss and then distracting yourself with something. Uh, at one point you build like a Rube Goldberg style squirrel trap uh, that I found quite entertaining. Uh, and you know, I don't think you can actually lose any of these mini games either. Like even when you don't do it correctly, it's just like try again, which I think is sort of the ethos of the game. It just wants you to get to the end uh, and experience these stories because it really is a game about storytelling. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this game, uh, which I really hope some people play, it's really inexpensive. It's on Xbox and on PC, uh, but that there's actually a documentary quality out of it. Most of the stories are based on people's uh, stories that the developers interviewed, uh, mostly people from uh, Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, um, and I think Italy. Uh, and occasionally, without giving too much away, Uh, there's some fourth wall breaking stuff that never feels like it's just experimenting for the sake of experimenting. It always feels like it's trying to remind you that storytelling is actually how we cope with the hardest stuff in our lives. So yeah, so that's, it's a, it's a small game. I think it takes about four hours, maybe five to play through. If you really take your time, there's a bunch of little Easter eggs in it that are kind of fun to search out, but it's really I don't know. It's a it's an adventure game. It's a walking simulator, and it's just a narrative game. Uh, Anastasia, do you have a, another game you want to talk with us about? Sure. And I guess this is kind of a, a category of games, uh, like Rogers. Uh, it's the games that were, for me were will categorize 2020 when you look back on it. And the games that uh, some of them, of course, kind of the big games that uh, dominated conversation, like Among Us and Animal Crossing. Uh, are games that have existed in one form or another prior to 2020, but kind of were perfectly positioned in the ways they offer kind of different types of social mechanics and that sense of connection uh, that Roger was talking about. To be those those games we're going to remember uh, as an important part of our kind of 2020 cultural experience. Um, for me, the the search for the game that could replace the gaming group uh, has has been a, its own challenge. And of course, the Jackbox games have helped. Uh, particularly recommend the Devils and the Details one from uh, Party Pack Seven as an example of kind of the type of more elaborate co- cooperative uh, play that is possible in that format. And one that uh, my group's been playing a lot recently uh, that I want to recommend is uh, Phasmophobia, which plays out like you're on an episode of Truth Seekers or uh, Ghost Ghost Facers for Supernatural fans out there. (laughs) It's, and it has a VR mode, which I haven't tried. VR is not my cup of tea, but it's 
a limited multiplayer co-op game with multiple ways to communicate in the game where you're exploring these different uh, hauntings and it gives you just a real sense of co-presence and stress. Everyone's limited in what they can carry, so it requires a lot of cooperation and coordination. Uh, so that's kind of stands out alongside better known games like Among Us to me as offering that opportunity for the type of meeting cooperation that distracts you from the weirdness <laughs> of our mm. collective play circumstances. Mm. Is phasmophobia scary, Anastasia? I'm, I, I'm, I've heard a lot of people talking about it, but I've, I haven't gotten a sense of whether or not it's like a jump scare thing or just kind of creepy or... It's got the jump scare factor kind of like... Um, Five Nights at Freddy's and kind of that sort of horror game. I imagine it's more disconcerting in VR, uh, right? That sense of presence is probably stronger. Um, it's, I don't find it scary per se, but I, I do think it has that adrenaline rush aspect of the, the jump scare uh, mm -hmm. timing based things and having uh, died at the hands of uh, particularly the revenants in that game. <laughs> I can say the death sequence and the sense of displacement and being a ghost after you've gone through a sequence is quite effective. <laughs> so wait, do you turn into a ghost after you die one time? You're, you're a ghost now? Yeah, so it, you're, the co-op game continues, but now you're a ghost hanging around and watching. And you can disturb certain objects, like I threw a shampoo bottle at one of my teammates in one of these when I was the ghost. <laughs> right, so again, you can express your annoyance. Oh, I would die right away. I would die right away just so I could throw stuff at my buddies. That would be amazing. Oh, man, I want to play this game now. I want the to downside is you lose all the resources that you brought in. So everybody brings equipment in, and that equipment determines how much you can accomplish. But if you die, you lose the equipment that you brought in, and you don't have it for your next haunting. Oh, I was going to lose all that anyway. Yeah. No, so just, you know, when you're going to die, don't don't contribute much to the group of resources. That's, <laughs> that's the trick. Maybe I'm starting. Maybe this is why my my attempt to replace my gaming group was single player. <laughs> Nobody would have you. I wasn't welcome back. <laughs> oh boy. No, that sounds really cool. That I'd heard about that a little bit and and uh was kind of thinking about maybe getting some some folks together to try it. It sounds really neat. It sounds really fun. We've, we've had fun. Uh and I do actually also play like D&D one night a week now, which is actually more consistent than it the D&D groups I've had at any point in my life, really. Uh, and it is definitely thanks to the, the Foundry, yeah, the virtual tabletop, the D&D Beyond, D &D Beyond resources, of course. And that whole setup is so slick now with Discord that I, I have mm. to admit, I still miss everything about a gaming group, shared snacks and side conversations and co-presence that are still lacking but from a playing D&D standpoint it's incredibly effective <laughs> in yeah. some ways it's easier uh, I don't know that I want to give up on my virtual uh, uh, character sheet that does all the work for me and then rolls through and the browser extension over to, <laughs> to the DM right away I'm like I agree I really need uh, that as many decks that I have now probably not <laughs> it's a really effective system it's been really, it, it's, it's that it's a weird trade off between like, on the one hand, you know, we used to have props, you know, and we'd all make snacks and we had, I had, you know, not like a, not like a, 
not like a costume, but I had like a silly hat, you know, like we, we, there were, there were all these things about being present together that mattered. But then at the same time we were doing, you know, trying to sort of mark out our combat on this stupid little, little white board, like this dry erase board. And it's, it's there. Yeah. It's this weird trade-off of sort of what you give up to get kind of the roll 20, like, oh, I can just click and measure exactly if I have enough room to cast this spell, like, but, but you don't have the snacks and I love the snacks. Yeah. But I don't want to give up the virtual, we're just going to have to put it on a big screen. Everybody <laughs> can, you know, roll out to the shared monitor. I can see the hybrid uh, <laughs> game night, yeah. uh, rather like uh, the hybrid conference and the hybrid classroom. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, you know, get very blend flex about it. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that with like some tablets or smartphones, like actually making sort of accessorizing as it were the the in-person experience in a really productive way it's yeah it's funny i feel like one of the things that you're making me thinking of you know i've bounced around a lot uh geographically over the past several years i was commuting between new hampshire and pennsylvania at one point and when i finally uh got to be more permanently in pennsylvania with my partner uh i managed to find like a gaming group that you know, is run out of the comic shop that I go to. And I was just sort of just getting into it and getting like a regular schedule going with them right as the pandemic like was hitting. And it was just like, I, you know, I was like, I was, you know, I think I was in the middle of a game of Gloomhaven, you know, oh. and just like, you know, all of these things were happening. I was learning all of these games. I had learned how to play the tabletop version of uh, this war of mine, uh, which is no small feat, at least for me, it wasn't any small feat because it was pretty complex and uh, one wonderfully miserable um and then it all just like came to an end and uh i have not i think in part because of having you know young children i have just not managed to get into you know a virtual D group or something but this is something we've talked about on the website actually is trying to get something together with a group of us and who knows maybe produce content from it maybe not maybe just enjoy each other's company um but yeah roger do you have another game that you want to throw out well, I wanted to address the elephant in the room um, because I both am really enjoying playing Cyberpunk 2077, but I also am annoyed at the politics of it at the same time. And it's like a weird, I feel like a doubleness in it. Um, and I think it's just because I don't think it's anything special necessarily that the game does. Um at all right like i don't think that it's like there's anything special about the storyline i don't think there's anything really special about what the game's doing which is basically like putting together grand theft auto and deus ex right like but i just love like so i think it i think it itches my deus ex like thing like i think it's like i remember loving just going into deus ex situations where you have multiple ways of like dealing with a dealing with a mission and like getting to get all the loot. Like I have this loot obsession. I think that's partly why I like Wasteland three too. <laughs> like I just like getting stuff and like, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just like over the past few weeks when things have been really difficult, I've just been playing this game just like all the time. And um I want to say this, like totally acknowledging that the trans transgender politics are really messed up 
right? Like you start out, and I remember this at the very beginning, like you can definitely change your genitalia. You can change the color of your pubic hair. Um, Always important. It's just really, <laughs> really weird. I'm it's glad really they weird. spent an extra three months building that into it. My God. Yeah. This is why I don't play or buy. Anyway, sorry. Just, no, it's okay. I didn't know. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's just, it's just really fascinating what these companies think like counts as that. Right. And so um, it was interesting when I was making my character. Um, I. I was like, well, I'm going to try like playing with different identity categories while doing this. And I found that like, well, you can basically like the most, the most you can do is basically you're a guy and you have female genitalia and maybe you have a female voice. Like that's, that's about as trans as you can get in that situation. Right. And there's no, there is no like, uh, body positivity, no, like there are all these different types of bodies. It's literally you're swapping parts. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was really weird. And then just sort of recognizing like there are all of these romance options in the game too, but they're, they're not even as advanced as I would say, like they are in like Mass Effect or, you know, those types of games. Um, they're very binary and very cis, right? Um, so it's been interesting. It's been interesting having this kind of weird experience while, you know, recognizing all these problems and like um, being frustrated, but also, you know, kind of getting into like the, the scenarios that they set up. So, yeah, I, I've been playing it too. Um, I think I'm a little less positive than you on it, Roger, though. Maybe I'm sort of on the same page as just kind of being mixed about it. I'm somebody who I've written on cyberpunk here and there. I know you've written on it in various ways and written on steampunk um, and written on two in a connection. And uh, I'm enjoying aspects of it. I think with the, in terms of the trans representation, I think the biggest thing is that it's funny because I feel like when it came out, people actually breathed a certain sigh of relief because the game was actually less problematic than people were expecting <laughs> because the, the marketing campaign was so bad mm-hmm. in terms of transphobia and, mm-hmm. and so, which is like, that's a sad state of affairs. Uh, and, but it just feels like they had this opportunity to do so much that other AAA games didn't do. All they had to do was put in some pronoun options and just like st- dial it back in a couple of places. And it actually could have done wonders for trans representation in terms of games because in part because the bar has been set so low um, in terms of mainstream games. There's actually been some really good stuff that's been done in indie games. Um, and, you know, I know that Nate, for example, has written about uh, extreme meat punks and they do some interesting things in terms of representation, extreme meat punks forever uh, by Heather Flowers and uh, Luca. I forget the last name of Luca. Uh, but, you know, it just, it felt like some squandered opportunities. And as I'm, as I'm playing the game, what I was thinking of, and we've talked about this, Roger, is that cyberpunk as a genre, it's not dead, but it is in a kind of state of exhaustion. And the people that have managed to do interesting things with it, at least in fiction and in, and in games, have had to reinvent what it means. They can't just throw all the tropes together. And people in fiction, I'm thinking of uh, Alex Beckett with their game Game Changer, or their book Game Changer, uh, what is 
her name, uh, the author of Autonomous, who was one of the people that start. Yeah, Annalie Newitz, uh, they're autonomous, I think is cyberpunk in a way, but manages to also break out of some of that genre's problematic points. And I'll just, you know, just to put it out there, the problem with Cyberpunk 27 is not that it's betrayed the genre, it's in fact that it's too faithful to it. William Gibson's, one of his first cyberpunk stories, John, Johnny Mnemonic, is transphobic on the first page. Like it makes like a joke about a trans character on the very first page of that story published in 1982. It's one of the first cyberpunk stories. Um, that's part of the genre and it's part of the genre that needs to be reckoned with. And I don't know. But I do like the GTA Deus Ex it's fun. mashup too. I hate I, that it's fun. I know, I yeah. It's, it's so bad that it's I, fun. You know, I, I, it's... <laughs> There, there are great parts of that game, and for me, as somebody who's interested in open world games, is like in terms of their environmental storytelling, it is impressively vertical. What it does yeah. with verticality in the city, what it does with even just things as simple as skyways between buildings, uh, is interesting to me. Well, um, and yeah, yeah, like um, just going back to like, I mean, I remember watching. And I, I actually haven't seen the second Blade Runner, which I, I feel like I need to see. But like I had never seen Blade Runner one and I watched Blade Runner one to like prepare for Blade Runner two. But then I never watched Blade Runner two. So like um, anyway, Blade Runner one has like horrific sexual politics in it. Like there's a whole scene, right, where Harrison Ford's character is coming on to Sean Young. Right. And it's it's literally rape. It's, I mean, it's, it's definitely not, there's definitely some big questions in terms of consent in that. And so, it, you know, it definitely does make you wonder about the limits of the genre and like, you know, how much of, of cyberpunk is itself sort of like caught in this sort of mega corporate like world of the 1980s where everything is like, very i mean i mean cyberpunk i mean it is a very cis heteronormative sort of sort of sexual environment i mean it just it it just is like and so it's just it's just interesting to like in some ways it's interesting to to like get into that game from the perspective of you know today and and seeing it as this interesting but really flawed um artifact so and I just want to say, just for maybe a little shout out for what we've tried to do with the site, that we've been running a series of articles uh, that Nate, uh, Don Everhart, and I have been contributing to on indie cyberpunk games. Uh, and, you know, if I had to pick a cyberpunk game of the year, just a cyberpunk game of the year, it would easily be Umarangi Generation, which is a cyberpunk photography game that is was developed by... Um, an indigenous, uh, an Australian indigenous developer, uh, and that deals with things like settler colonialism while still having this interesting implicit story that I won't spoil uh, because it sort of sneaks up on you in an interesting way. Uh, but we've talked about games like that. We've talked about pivotal end of the skyline, uh, and so there are these options that you know. I just want to mention that. You know, if you if you want to avoid Cyberpunk 2077, uh, there are plenty of ways to do that while still getting your Cyberpunk fix. Uh, 
And who knows? He might be better off for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nate, why don't you take us back down to Earth, as it were? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to... Yes, I will. I'll bring us back to Earth out of the 80s and out of the whatever whatever fake i almost wonder if there's something about cyberpunk that is just like nostalgia for the 80s or nostalgia for what sci-fi was in the 80s and that's why it feels like it's one thing like that's why it feels like it's this thing that is is stuck imagining the same future over and over and over again like the same kind of future in 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 like in the at least in terms of these big cyberpunk gestures that are sort of cultural touchstones like Blade Runner or um or that kind of thing. But well, I don't it's know. caught I, I mean it's caught yeah. in its own cynicism in a lot of ways, right? This is from my perspective what Kim Stanley Robinson is currently saying, which is very useful, which is like, you know, we don't have like so much of us we're all depressed and certainly we're facing these huge challenges, but part of it is because our sci-fi writers are so like cynical. Like they're not offering any alternative vision at all to the present. And um, yeah, like I think that there's some critique that can go into the cyberpunk space in that in that kind of that kind of sense that like technology is not going to like save us and all of that stuff. Um, I think that that can be certainly very useful. Um, on the other hand, it can be very sort of stultifying. And so... Anyway, sorry. I had yeah, to... no, that's great. That's great. No, I, it's really my fault. I was supposed to bring this back to Earth, and I kept talking about cyberpunk. Um, so I guess my my big back to Earthy sort of like super super folksy down home video game podcast part is uh, that the the one thing that really happened this year um, that altered my video game experience probably more than anything else um, was that my son turned six and is finally sort of developed kind of the, 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 the various forms of dexterity that are necessary for us to play some games together. Um, sort of without having to, uh, you know, where, where it really feels like we're doing something collaboratively, you know, um, that's not just like us kind of playing, uh, or really me kind of playing and him just sort of being present, but really sort of getting a, the, the, the old now, the, the, the Mario Kart that I grew up on, and it, it had this, it was the one where you were two characters and there was somebody in the front and somebody in the back and the person in the back just d- does all the throwing and stuff like, and, and, and doesn't really do anything else. And I never understood why that mechanic was in there until I went to play the game with a six-year-old and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the most fun I have had playing a video game this entire year. This is amazing because it's, it's this space where we become uh, equals in a way that parents and children almost never are. Um, and, and, or, or, or almost never give themselves permission to be, uh, and it's, it's this weird relationship that is defined by all of these really odd and messy forms of power and these really awkward power dynamics. Um, and playing games together, uh, has really brought us 
I think it, it in, into some places where we have really been working as a team, which has made a big difference in a year when a lot of our other interactions have involved mutual, different levels of mutual frustration at doing first grade virtually, <laughs> right? And me being a totally unprepared um, first grade instructor <laughs> you know <laughs> like just not i don't have that in me i don't have it and i'm not good at it and and so <laughs> trying to figure that all out we've been we've been really and you know it it just being me and him so much of the time too it's just like we've been really annoyed with each other a lot over the last few months and and we've had these little video game spaces that are mostly nintendo um where where we've been able to share these uh these mutual often cooperative um uh sequences of play and that has kind of been the thing about my pandemic gaming experience that I have probably thought about the least and actually perhaps benefited the most from in in a lot of ways yeah, that sounds great. And you said Spirit Fair is one of those games, right? Yeah, yeah. And he loves that. Um, I mean, he just he likes that because there's a cat and he likes cats. And so if there's a cat and a thing, but that's also been a, that's a game that we can kind of look at and play with together and um, go around collecting the little things that that let you build your boat bigger and carry your little creatures to different places. Um but also that, you know, it has this whimsical way of handling death and loss and a lot of the kinds of things that we've been seeing, you know, going around, going on around us. And that, you know, I don't know that the, that the podcast is the place to get into all the details of this, but he and I are no strangers mutually of death and loss either. And so he, it's not like playing spirit fair with him is like his first time where he's like, Oh my, like people die. And it's, and, and so because he's approaching it from his subject position, which I so frequently can't, can't begin to fathom in all these amazing ways. Um, it's, it's made sort of talking about this collective loss that we're experiencing over and over and over again. Um, throughout the pandemic, it's given us some sort of platforms to talk about that because in Spirit Fair, it's basically, it's it's a lot like a sort of two-dimensional version of Animal Crossing, but you're helping, you know, bring these animals to the, to, through the spirit world so they can get where they need to go. Yeah, that sounds great. Plus it has a hug mechanic, if I'm not mistaken, Exactly, right? it does. You can just, and, and, and you, you, you can sort of check in on the person too and see if they really like want or need a hug right now uh, before you just kind of go <laughs> in for it. There's this whole, there, 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 there is a lot of good, uh, good stuff going on in, in Spirit Fair, I would say. So I guess to wrap up our games of the year, I'll, you know, talk about, you know, the, my last two games and really more about one than the other. But I do want to say that uh, for all my ambivalence regarding AAA games, I found myself impressed by Last of Us Part Two in the same way that I'm impressed by like, 
an Oscar picture that wins best drama, right? You know, that that does all the things that a best drama winner is supposed to do uh, and does it well and takes some risks while still being in within that genre of like a mainstream film or in this case, a AAA game. Uh, and, you know, it didn't revolutionize the first one in terms of gameplay mechanics that you can lie prone, you can jump, uh, those are the new mechanics, basically. Uh, the stealth is a little bit denser. Uh, the artificial intelligence is a little bit better. But that's kind of it. But what it did do, and I will just, big spoiler warning, uh, just heads up. What it did do is introduced your ability to play as two characters that are in an antagonistic relationship with each other without really privileging one over the other, right? So you can play as Ellie or you have to play as Ellie and then you play as Abby. Uh, and neither of them get short shrift. Uh, and I will say that what I liked about this game that I often felt like a lot of critics neglected are the sweet moments, are the moments where you see characters caring about other characters that I feel like mostly got ignored and for understandable reasons it was a very dark gritty game in a lot of ways uh but there are these moments where like joel takes ellie to a museum to like look at the uh space exploration exhibit that are just touching um and i won't go into any more because i don't want to get you know for those who are sort of waiting to play it like roger perhaps um I don't want to say anymore, but I'll just say it did take some risks that it didn't have to take. And it took the kinds of risks that they had to know that they would get a bunch of blowback from. In fact, they did know. They said as much um, in interviews. And they did. And they got, you know, they got their piles and piles of death threats. And the uh, actor, Laura Bailey, who played Abby, got you know, basically had to step back from the Twitter and, you know, various social media for a little while um, for a role that she was amazing in. And so I, I do have to say that it was a game that I was impressed with. Uh, it's certainly my AAA game of the year. But the game that I actually do really want to talk about that came out last year and that is actually coming to consoles, which was recently announced soon with uh, a bunch of new voice acting, uh, is Disco Elysium. Uh, which is a you know CRPG isometric uh, you know point and click style role playing game that takes away your usual dexterity, intelligence, stats, and your usual skills of magic uh, or lock picking or archery, and replaces them with things like uh, half light or drama, as in the kind of drama that goes with, like, getting into big fights with people. Or, um, you know, there's all these different just weird sort of wacky, quote-unquote, skills or traits that you get uh, that are that you can only pick up if you trigger certain things in the game through what most of the game consists of, which is dialogue, dialogue options. Uh, and very there's tons of reading in this game. This is a game where you will read as much as you would if you were reading a novel, uh, which I think anybody who you know decides to play it should know before they play it. Uh, and you're playing a detective who is trying to figure out why he's woken up drunk and then to figure out a murder that's t 
taken place uh, in the backyard of the motel that he's living at uh, and that he's not sure why he's living at for that matter. He's not sure what his name is at first and he's not sure uh, why he's not living at his own house (laughs) if he has a house. And so you have to, you're figuring out your own identity. It's that old sort of amnesia tale and you're figuring out this murder, but you're also in this kind of like alternate history, steampunk world uh, that's post-revolutionary. There was a revolution that took place that you learn more about that failed and you're learning more about that through the game. And I guess it was another one of these examples of like a game that gives you little slivers of hope uh, well, at the same time, makes you reckon with a political situation that's not great. And it's also a game where you're playing a detective and kind of hard-boiled noir sort of situation uh, where it doesn't really make you feel good about being a cop at all, <laughs> um, which is sort of impressive in its way. You know, in a moment where like we should be thinking about what it means to play a cop and what it means to be playing a detective and what it means to be thinking about crime as a category, as a thing. Uh, And yeah, so I I really enjoyed that game. I almost never finish computer role-playing games that are isometric. I usually play them for like 20 hours, maybe even 30, and still I don't finish them. And I finished this one. And uh, it felt simultaneously overwhelming and manageable at the same time. Uh, So I definitely recommend it to anybody especially if you want to get your detective fiction, computer role-playing game, uh, post-revolutionary fix. And there's Marxism in it. And there's lots of (laughs) Marxism in it. If you pick the right dialogue trees, you can basically get like Bolshevism as one of your character traits, as one of your quote-unquote skills. And it opens up these like really obnoxious, like obnoxious in the best way, like leftist discourse trees of, but like, you know, what would Lenin have said sort of things, you know? Um, if you've ever done any unionizing uh, with like a Trotskyist, uh, which I have, um, uh, you'll know what I mean. I was just like, but, you know, what would Trotsky say? Uh, and so there are great moments in this game that really spoke to me, um, because I've only ever been part of failed union drives. <laughs> I've been part of multiple failed union drives. Uh, and so there was something that really spoke to me in the game about that. Um, yeah. So that's our games of the year, unless anybody wants to try to sneak anything under the wire. Uh, otherwise we're going to talk about what we're hoping for next year. Um, and I don't want to start because I just finished up in a way that I wasn't expecting to this category. So maybe how about Roger? Why don't you start off and then we'll go to Anastasia from Roger. Well, the number one thing that I'm hoping for next year is, uh, and I know it won't happen, but the end of the pandemic, that's my, <laughs> like the first, that's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw that question was like, but I think, you know, with that, with that, uh, that response comes like all sorts of different questions about what, what it will mean to game in 2021. What will it mean to have, as Anastasia said earlier, uh, opening up board game night? When will that be possible? Right. When will it be possible to, to, I, I was watching um, this great uh, 
Netflix documentary. This is a total digression, but like um, about um, a bunch of uh, uh, black high school students doing monologues for August Wilson plays, right? And it was a competition that, that and there was, most of this documentary was happening in 2018, but that all these people like just sort of, just a celebration of the theater. And I was just sitting there and I'm like, God, I miss that so much. I miss that so much. And so, you know, figuring out what I hope is that we figure out a way to engage in what I think is one of the most important parts of gaming, which is a ways of like being together and, and uh, socializing and engaging with one another and all of that stuff. Um, so uh, the two other hopes, I guess it's, yeah, two other hopes that I have. Um, the first one is kind of a funny hope, but I, 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 I'm not really looking, like, I don't want to buy a new console. <laughs> I, I don't at all. Like, I just think it's stupid. I'm annoyed at having to pay the money. It's, I've had my PS4 for a while, but oh, I'm so annoyed with having to get some, a new console. Um, I'm doubly annoyed, by the way, and people of the site know this. I'm doubly annoyed by the whole Demon Souls situation. I've wanted to play that game for years, four years, and they bring it out as one of the few PS5 games that aren't that that isn't also offered on PS4, right? And so I'm sitting here not wanting to buy the PS5, totally annoyed that I can't play this game that came out in like years ago. It came out years ago, right? It's not like it's the newest game ever. Um, and, um, wondering what, you know, at what point am I just gonna just let it go, right? And go for it. But, um, that's kind of where I am with that. It's not a happy place to be. Um, and then the third thing, um, I'm just hoping is sort of a general hope for a lot of years is just more experimentation with Soul-like, Souls-like games. I really like Souls-like game, but I feel like they tend, they've tended with some exceptions, they've tended to be a pretty homogenous group of, of subgenre of games. Um, so like the three that I played this year that were pretty good um, were Scourgebringer, uh, Mortal Shell, and Morbid, the Seven Alkalites. Uh, Scourgebringer is probably the most experimental uh, of the three, and it's really more of a roguelike than a Souls-like. But... Um, you know, both Mortal Shell and Morbid, the Seven Acolytes, had their sort of moments and were interesting in terms of, like, gameplay, sort of, but really, really sort of, like, just kind of going off of that same uh, Souls formula, which is fine, but, you know, the whole point of, for me, why Souls games were so powerful when I got into them is that they were so different and so challenging and so interesting and had uh, a lot of work put into them. Um, so that's partly why I'm really, I'm really hoping uh, they're going to, because I feel like from software probably has been very experimental recently. Sekiro isn't quite a Souls game, but that's why it's such an interesting game. Um, and so I feel like the same thing is going to be true. I hopefully of Elden Ring, um, there wasn't a lot of news this year, probably for obvious reasons, um, but I know a lot of Elden Ring fans are frustrated at the lack of, of, of updates for that game. I continue to be hopeful, um, that something will happen in 2021, if not the release of the game. 
Um, well, so luckily, George R.R. R. Martin is consulting on it, and you know he's really yeah. known for his timeliness oh, with things. So yeah, I'm sure exactly. you'll hear about it in the next ten years. <laughs> right. Totally. 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 Do you know how angry Game of? Th- I'm not a Game of Thrones fan, but do you know how angry they're going to be when he like wraps up his consulting? Oh yeah. On Elden Ring before he's finished this most recent novel. Totally. Uh, that even I know is like apparently something that people want. Right. Right. No, I agree. I agree. I think he's already done. Because I think his the only thing he did on the game is he like created the Bible of the world. Like he didn't mm-hmm. even write the story. Um, and so I feel like uh, from software was very sort of like careful in how they chose to have him participate. That's know. probably very smart. <laughs> let's 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 have let's have a drink and talk about a couple of ideas. Okay, you you created this world, you know. Like, Bye. <laughs> that's how I would deal with it, you know. <laughs> Excellent. So. so, Anastasia, what are you hoping for for next year? Well, I I realize I don't have as many specific games I'm looking forward to right now, in part because. My Zoom fatigue has been so great that listening to virtual announcements and kind of any of those things, it's just hasn't happened. So there's only a few games that have kind of caught my attention and are are on my list. Uh, And one, and this is really just a a dig at that cyberpunk game that you all are playing for some reason, (laughs) Uh, is the sequel to uh, Read Only Memories uh, and that uh, Neurodiver. is supposed to come out sometime in 2021. And that's a great example of uh, queer cyberpunk that to me feels current (laughs) and Uh and relevant while kind of offering gameplay that uh, doesn't fall into the ableist transphobic trap of the cyborg, which is really something that Uh, cyberpunk 27 is terrible at. And the second Blade Runner movie was also terrible at, Uh (laughs) just right. Uh, and it takes uh, rethinking some of the tenets of cyberpunk, I think, to break out of those traps because the, the very way that the, the cyborg has been framed, uh, uh, particularly in the classics of the genres, it yeah. puts you in quite the, uh, quite the ableist yeah. trap uh, yeah. from day one. Uh, so that one, I think, should be the type of cyberpunk game I can, uh, I can buy, so excited for that and then in kind of the smaller uh, world of course uh, open roads uh, coming from the the gone home team uh, this one mm. i'm particularly excited about because it's a it's a mother-daughter storyline and a road trip and uh, there's a lot that's comforting in the aesthetics and kind of early announcements of that game and there's that suggestion of that exploration of memory uh that that team's so good at so looks the aesthetic looks great it's almost like a kind of rotoscoped sort of animated style. Uh, yeah, it looks really wonderful. Yeah, it reminds me a little of um, that movie, uh, Waking Life. Yeah, the Richard Linklater. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah, so anything that has that type of aesthetic gets, gets on my list right away. And I know there are, there are other games that uh, I've flagged and followed accounts, but those are the two that are at the, at the top of my... I will watch for an actual announcement. <laughs> Other than that, of course, I am really excited for the return of board game night uh, and the hopeful return to a classroom. Oh. I do wonder how it's going to impact those of us who teach kind of this type of subject matter. 
because uh, for instance, I'm teaching an interactive storytelling uh, class in the spring, the same class that was the, I was teaching when the pandemic kind of interrupted. And thankfully we'd gotten past the third of that course. It's all board games and physical games at that point, oh, gosh. But, right? I'm rewriting that now and just throwing it out because I can't ask students to pay for the things I would normally bring in. It's right. I have yeah. full class sets of games. I have stacks of choose your own adventure novels and obscure releases and interactive books and not being able to share physical media with people is really a drag right now. Uh, and I look forward to being back in a space where it's possible, hopefully in 2021. Yeah. I'm teaching my first game studies course in spring 2022, <laughs> uh, which, you know, with course planning and everything, you know, get to figure it out that far in advance for us at least. Uh, and I, I still don't know exactly where we're going to be with things and precisely the board games is where I'm most worried about. So uh, I'll be interested to hear the kind of strategies you come up at some point. I'm just going to sit here laughing at the idea of knowing what you're teaching in 2022. <laughs> this time last year, I was in, a, in an entirely different department. <laughs> I even am right now. Uh, the idea of knowing my course schedule in advance is, is hilarious. Oh my God. Penn State does that. We don't need to get into this, but Penn State does everything very far in advance. And it's like, killing me they're like as soon as i'm finishing teaching one course they're like so how about the book list for your course that you're teaching a year and a half from now and i'm just oh like my gosh. Oh. um i don't yeah in any case uh yeah so this is connects nicely to uh my last point which is i'd love to be able to concentrate on real games again i mm. bought hades as a and finally I'm, I'm getting to the point where i think i can play it but we've been in panic mode so much and it's impossible to plan. So I feel like I'm constantly responding to challenges and, and mm -hmm. my job and thinking mm -hmm. about next semester and trying to support students as best we can. I would just like to be out of that mode and right. in a space where concentration is more possible. Right. I know there are people getting new book projects written right now and doing all these things. And I, you know, that's impressive, but I'm not in that. <laughs> mind space yeah. right now i'd like to to find it again that's interesting yeah 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 definitely. i definitely have been in that sort of panic mode and oh, it's not easy and that concentration is hard um you know in terms of what i'm looking forward to next year hoping for i guess again the better way of putting it uh you know the really discreet thing i guess the really sort of easy thing that seems likely to happen is that uh the developer arcane is having a new game come out this is a developer behind games like uh the dishonored series prey uh, you know, they've been working on the immersive sim genre for 20 years now, uh, even their earliest titles. Uh, it was really interesting. This was a year where we saw a documentary come out, I want to say by No Clip, uh, whose work I quite like, uh, about their Half-Life episode that never got finished. They were going to make an episode of Half-Life, uh, in fact, I think episode three, uh, and we got to see pieces of that. But they are making a game called death loop that is another immersive sim uh where i think you play an assassin but it seems like there's a kind of groundhog day time loop element in it and there's also an element where you're playing against other 
players, uh, where you're being hunted while you're doing the hunting as well. And I don't know too much more than that uh, about it. What I do know is that in consoles, it's a PS5 exclusive. uh, And I really would rather play it on a console than on my PC. Uh, But I don't know if I'm going to get a PS5 before then, so it might be a PC game for me. Uh, So that's the game that I'm looking forward to. The thing that I'm most hoping for, though, uh, is I hope that 2021 is the year when unionization really accelerates in the game industry. Uh, Game Workers Unite has been organizing and they've had some success in the UK, but as far as I can tell, virtually no success in the US. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with US labor laws. Um, And a lot of that has to do, I would say, with the politics of a lot of game developers within mainstream game development in particular, which I think a lot of us probably know has a tendency to lean a little bit libertarian in that kind of Silicon Valley streak where it's weirdly it can like swing back and forth between left and right in very strange ways. But there has been a real antipathy, a real resistance to labor organization uh, that I think is maybe finally getting worked through or broken past or broken through. Uh, And, you know, bringing it back to cyberpunk for just a moment, last week we saw within a financial call with investors, the actual developers of cyberpunk, so the programmers, really just lash out understandably against not only uh, like top management at, the company CD Projekt Red, but also against a lot of the studio heads and against creative directors and stuff who had really been in charge of having them crunch and been in charge of implementing aspects of the game that a lot of them just said, hey, look, like we either don't have the resources or we don't have the resources to do this in the timeline that you put forth. And we were telling you that the console version of this was going to come out busted. And you just kept telling people, oh, it's looking great um, on the PR end. And as much as people rail against crunch, it seems to me that usually game critics, most, not all game critics, seem to kind of frame it as, well, maybe we should just shouldn't buy these games. And the stodgy socialist in me says, the problem is never going to get solved that way. It is only going to get solved through organizing. Um, and even on an indie level, a lot of these things have to get solved through organizing because there are indie devs that also crunch. Uh, and, you know, there are indie studios that have actually been organizing through cooperatives uh, that are really interesting to take a look at. Um, and so for me, the big hope that I have is just that game devs and dev culture can move towards more unionizing and I guess the other side thing is I would put uh, towards more remote work as well for people uh, that um, need that or for whom that's been beneficial. Uh, Because I think one of the things you've also seen that's been positive is a bunch of studios saying, actually, we're going to support remote work uh, even after the pandemic's over. And that has been a silver lining. I think Uh, the biggest one to do it is Square Enix uh, has said they'll support remote work. And that's huge. And that's going to make a huge difference, especially for women and people of color in the industry. Yeah, that's my thing. 
I guess. That's what I'm hopeful for. Uh, very, very cautiously. <laughs> Nate, you want to bring us home? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to... What I'm hopeful for is I'm not going to play any video games again. Like, next year, I'm just going to spend the entire year outside uh, sort of wandering around. Then <laughs> we can sort of set up... Uh, set up. Uh, I'll do a column like Nate's Outdoorsy Corner, and I'm going to... For the website, <laughs> I'm going to partner with John, uh, and he's going to help me identify all the birds that I see on all my walks. <laughs> um, and then... We can gamify that. <laughs> we can turn that. It'll be like, <laughs> it'll be like Pokemon Snap, but just for actual birds with a camera. Um, <laughs> and 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 that's how I'm gonna spend my year. So I guess a couple things I'm hoping for next year in terms of of video games. I I'd say I am really excited by what I see about uh, book of travels um, the little half hour gameplay thing that they that they released just looked like it's exactly kind of in my sweet spot of like meditative gently performative kind of slow gaming um, where where you can sort of take your time and experience a world that's also not huge um, but, but where you have opportunities to, uh, to engage in different kinds of RPG behaviors, like you were pointing at Christian sort of with, with disco Elysium, like uh, Elysium, Elysium. I don't know. La, 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 la. Where you can um, kind of engage with different kinds of abilities and things that, things that, you know, not that we need to, that games need to always be getting closer and closer to doing the things that only tabletops can really do, but, but that you might have the opportunity to engage in some of the, some of the different kinds of things that you might come up with on your own creatively if you were playing a more peaceful, pacifistic character in a tabletop game, right? Um, so I'm excited about that. The, the art looks beautiful. And um, it's been a really, really long time since I played an online game where there were other uh, human players involved. And um, I would be sort of excited to see how that would work and, and how that might go um, in, in terms of doing it in this world where that's uh, not based on being the most gigantic world conceivable, but that still has a story built into it. And also, and this was the thing that I think w was, was really important where combat is something that does not happen all the time. And when it does, there are really serious, really meaningful consequences for your character and for the way that the game uh, actually plays uh, afterwards. I've been so interested this year in uh, all these different games that I've been playing that 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 play on the concepts of of death and combat, these sort of foundational expectations that you have for about what a video game kind of is or or can be, you know, I've really enjoyed being able to kind of play around, play around those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to, I'm, I'm hoping to build a, build a fun commander deck and actually go play, uh, you know, it, it, once, once the game stores open, like go play some magic. I'd really like that. I'd like to, 
either get enough money or have some friends maybe get together and play Gloomhaven because um, we I that's something that just looks super fun and I just haven't didn't get it before the pandemic and don't have the money for it now and I feel like we would kind of need to be able to get together to do it so I'd like to do that but uh yeah and 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 you know I'm because this is this is kind of the the service that I provide I'm excited to keep hanging out on on itch and 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 seeing what kinds of of um jams that they do and what kinds of cool stuff that none of us have heard of yet that that somebody is going to throw the first game that they've ever made you know uh up on there sometime next year and it's going to blow my mind and be really fun and creative i'm really excited to kind of keep doing that and see how that goes yeah that's a great note to end on and i'll just say you know thanks for listening everyone who's listening and uh we've got a few more things going into the feed i'm not exactly sure what order but you know check out our interview uh, with Alenda Chang about her book, Playing Nature. Uh, and we had a recent interview that went up with Brendan Keough, uh, which turned out really well that Kel Martin did. And we've got a spoiler cast uh, coming up on Spider-Man Miles Morales that was a real blast with, uh, who was that? Was Trey Andrea Russworm joined us? Mm-hmm. And uh, who's the other person that joined us, Roger? Julian Chambliss. Yeah, Julian Chambliss. And it was a real fun time, I think, talking about the, uh, the fun gameplay and uh, really complicated politics of that game. But hope everybody has a great rest of their 2020. Uh, and that 2021 brings less of a disaster. <laughs> 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 and lots of good things, too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>